Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we cover and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. You can find us at the Nevada Independent. Com. Joined today by two of my reporters, Megan Messerly and Riley Snyder. Say hello, guys. Hey, John. Hello, John. Hi there. We're, we're uh, as uh, are, is going to be our habit now, we're recording this podcast on Thursday afternoon. Lots of news uh, this week, as always. And it, it kind of started out uh, with a very strange story that we that you two and Jackie Valley, our colleague, uh, worked on about the superintendent. Uh, I believe of the Clark County School District for the second time now banning banning a trustee from campus. Who wants to talk about that first? I guess I can sort of lay down the scene and Riley can give us some context afterwards. Um, but yeah, so the the superintendent, Clark County School District Superintendent Pat Skorkowski, sent out this memo to school staff informing them that trustee Kevin Child has been banned from all campuses. He's not allowed to show up um, anymore on his own. He's also not allowed to directly contact any staff members on his own. He needs to go through the superintendent moving forward. There, there was he, he was warned not to visit campuses with Without permission, back last or earlier this year, um, by Skorkowski. By Skorkowski, yes. And Skorkowski said in this memo that uh, child did not adhere to that admonition not to visit without permission. Um, so he was taking this extra step now to you know ban him officially and um, prevent him from contacting any officials. Uh, in this in the statement he put out, he said that several staff members have felt uncomfortable by his behavior. This has been something that's you know been talked about for years. People have come forward with with various complaints, and the Rue Journal has done some reporting on this. So it's something that's been well-known for for a time, but today, or this week, we saw um, the superintendent sort of take this next step. So, Riley, if you want to elaborate anymore. Does Child child say he's going to abide by this, Riley? What does he say? He told our colleague Jackie Valley that, as is usual with most of these allegations Mm -hmm. that they're untrue, that no real complaints against him have been filed. This is the latest in, in a long series. He has, Megan was talking about some of the allegations, like he's done or been accused of like going to a classroom of second graders and telling them snitches get stitches and that one out of 20 people will go to jail. That means one of you will go to jail. Just sort of behavior like this. The Review Journal, as Megan mentioned, has done a lot of reporting on this. They've actually filed public records lawsuits to try and get a copy of the complaints. There's something like 20 or so that have been filed that the, the district is keeping under wraps. So that's an ongoing case. And this is just the latest step in that. I guess, guys, what what people might be wondering who are listening or who read the piece is that, okay, theoretically, Kevin Child is on the board. He's a school trustee. Isn't he Pat Skorkowski's boss? How does the staff guy ban the uh, elected trustee from going to campus? Anybody know the answer to that? I don't know as far as the, <laughs> we'd have to have our education reporter here, Jackie Valley, who's not with us here today. Jackie can call but, in. Jackie, you can call in. <laughs> but I think one of the interesting things to note, too, that Skorkowski mentioned in this memo is that according to Skorkowski, Child has been threatening staff members saying, you know, if you file a complaint against me, I'm going to have your job, things of that nature. And Skorkowski noted, you know, I'm the only person, you know, the, the trustees have authority over. They can fire me if they want to. That's fine. You know, but all that comes back to me. They should not be making threats about or he's he should not be making threats about your your jobs that's just not appropriate and so what happens if he if he goes on campus i mean there's no sanction right 
Well, what Skorkowski said in the memo is that if um, if he goes to campus, you know, he should be asked to leave immediately. If he doesn't, he said that child has been informed that CCSD police will be called to escort him off the campus. So that that has been set out as sort of the, the step if he does not leave on his own. And Child and Skorkowski, from what I can tell, have not had a good relationship for a long time, right, Riley? Is that right? Yeah, so Pat Skorkowski uh, announced a few weeks ago that he was not going to return to superintendent when his contract was up. That'll be done after the school year. And he was flanked when he made this announcement by five of the seven uh, Board of Trustees members. And one of the two that was not invited and was not informed that he was retiring was Kevin Child. Kevin Child has consistently called for a forensic audit of the school district's finances. There's been this whole issue of an ongoing budget crunch with the district. Kevin Child has been very critical of Pat Skorkowski, hasn't been afraid to say this to the media, on on talk radio. And so he's clearly taking it as a personal slight against him and sort of this interpersonal battle while Skorkowski is trying to sort of, in this memo, laid out that it was actually a disciplinary uh, issue, that why, why he was doing this. All right. So that's an unusual, bizarre Clark County School District uh, story that, that, that we covered. Uh, Another story that came up this week, uh, Megan, uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, Obamacare and Medicare and Medicaid, and suddenly we have the return of something from the legislative session called Sprinkle Care. What is Sprinkle Care and what's going on? Yeah, so for, for listeners who have been, you know, with us since the very beginning <laughs> or read the Nevada Independence at the beginning, you'll remember a bill that came out during the legislati- legislative session, which I think Riley are actually responsible for coining the term Sprinkle Care. I am the sprinkle- <laughs> father of Sprinkle Care is what's going to be on my tombstone. Perhaps First responsible. Of my obit. Yeah. Perhaps responsible then for killing it, for coming up with that name. Yeah, so <laughs> what happened? Assemblyman Mike Sprinkle, a Democrat from northern Nevada, introduced this bill. Uh, in the middle of the legislative session to open up Medicaid to allow Nevada residents to buy in. So essentially, you know, Medicaid is for, you know, low-income people, people with disabilities, things of that nature. Um, You have to meet certain criteria to qualify. What this legislation would have done in its original form is allow Nevadans to, you know, pay a certain premium and then buy into that system of Medicaid coverage. So it would be sort of like a a public option that's been talked about a lot where it's, you know, government-run, Medicaid programs are run by the states, which would give people another option for health insurance. It would be sold on the exchange. So it would just be an alternative to employer or employer sponsored healthcare or to the, the coverage you purchase individually on the exchange. Eventually that measure was changed. Um, it was amended to allow people to buy into a Medicaid-like system of insurance. Um, that passed uh, the legislature um, but was ultimately vetoed by the governor who praised uh, Sprinkle's creativity but basically said it needed more time and thought and work. So that was the first chapter of the story. But now we have this bill coming forward on on a national level that all of Nevada's congressional delegation have signed on to that would essentially allow states to do what Sprinkle Care did. It would give them the ability to create this kind of system where their residents could buy into the state's Medicaid program. So it wouldn't force them. If Nevada doesn't want to do this, it wouldn't have to do it, but it would give states the authority to develop these kinds of programs. Um, so Nevada's congre- congressional delegation signed on to the proposal. All of them? All of yeah, uh, yeah, all of them. All or, of them. Sorry, all of the, the Democratic <laughs> members of Mark the House uh, Surprise! Socialized medicine. Surprise! I thought you were breaking. Heller, <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were breaking news on this podcast. No, I did not know about Megan. No. no. <laughs> so all the Democrats signed on. Yes, all the Democrats signed on. That is. But not all at once, correct? But no, not all at once. So uh, early in the morning, Congressman Ruben Kiewen's, uh staff put out a press release saying he, Congresswoman Jackie Rosen, are backing. We're backing this measure. Um, I think it was an hour or two later that uh, Congresswoman Dina Titus put out a statement saying that she is also co-sponsoring the measure. 
uh, Kiwin and, and Rosen did not mention Titus. Titus did not mention the other two. And then finally, um, Senator Cortez Masto also put out a statement. Uh, so sort of a one by one, the, the ducks are all falling in a row. And I know this happened earlier, r- right in the wake of the shooting, actually, when the bump stock ban was introduced in Congress. Uh, Senator, or, uh, <laughs> Senator, <laughs> all these Freudian slips today. Um, Congresswoman Titus <laughs> in, uh, signed on to co-sponsor that bump stock bill. And later, a few hours later, um, Congressman Kewin and Congresswoman Rosen then signed on to that legislation in their own press release. So there have been sort of these dueling press releases where not everyone can just announce one thing in one press release. They all have to sort of, you know, mark their claims. It's interesting that people get to learn these things from listening to a podcast like that. I mean, they they see the headline, they see the story, but there really are, all of these politicians have egos. They they have these little uh, um, uh, personality conflicts. Uh, Ruben Kewin and Dina Titus were once in a congressional race together. Ruben Kewin was essentially forced out of the race by Dina Titus a few cycles ago. Dina Titus and Jackie Rosen really don't get along because Jackie Rosen was the chosen pick for Senate this time, and right. Dina Titus was upset about that. And and these things carry over. I, I, and you wonder at some point whether it does affect you know uh, th- their ability to work with each other and, and work with others. I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter that much if some signed on at 6 a.m. our time and others signed on at 9 a.m. But clearly, there are some personality differences here, right? Yeah, I think we've seen, you know, like you mentioned, shadows of that here and there, and it's nothing, you know, overt. But and at the end of the day, too, you know, there, there are only so many Democrats in Congress, you know, trying to trying to work together to get things done with, you know, a Republican majority. And so at the end of the day, you know, how how much do you want to focus on the infighting? versus just doing doing what's good for Nevada and, and doing what your party believes in. Yeah, you'll just leave that to me. You you just stick you just, <laughs> you just stick to the to, to the to that stuff. Uh, I'll I'll provide uh, everybody with the perspective of too many years, right, Riley? <laughs> No comment. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> been so, fired once today, John. I don't need to be fired again. That's right. That's right. Somebody, you have to check out, I have to tell you, you have to check out the pumpkin that uh, Riley carved uh, showing his uh, enduring respect for, 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 for the editor uh, and, and apparently anyone with my last name. A- anyhow, um, Riley, uh, speaking of politics and maybe uh, uh, an issue that is going to go on for a while just as uh, 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 sprinkle care and, and, and uh, the public option will go on for a while, energy. Uh, which you have covered uh, in depth. Uh, you did an energy story today with somebody who really hasn't talked that much about energy uh, so far. You went to an event. Yes. So I went to this very wonky um, National Marketers Association of, of, of Energy. I'm probably getting their name wrong because it's very immemorable. There's probably like 60 or 70 um, energy marketers, retailers, people who sell energy who came to Las Vegas, came to Caesars Palace for this conference on energy choice. Question three, it passed in 2016, basically, it would um, change Nevada from being a top-down, monopolized energy system where Envy Energy controls generation, transmission, and the retail sales to where they only control transmission. And then you can like buy energy from a variety of companies. We've talked about this many, many times in many, many co- podcasts before. But I was interested in going because Adam Laxalt, our attorney general, who is going to announce he's running for governor on November 1st, was there and was going to speak at the event. Um I was curious to see where all of the, the gubernatorial candidates stand on energy choice because basically no matter who wins in 2018, whoever's in the governor's mansion in 2019 is going to have to deal with this. This is a big sea change. It doesn't take effect. If it does pass, again, it's on the ballot in 2018. It's a constitutional amendment, so it has to pass twice. Whoever is in charge, this is going to be one of their top things that they'll have to deal with during their term. So unfortunately, um, this was not told to me before the event, but Attorney General Laxalt's comments were close to the press. 
We had a photographer who showed up and tried to take pictures of him. The event organizer asked our photographer to delete those photos afterwards. Attorney General didn't want to answer any questions about it, about energy choice, whether or not he supported question three in 2016. So all that was frustrating. Um, I still got a copy of what he said during the lunch. It was pretty non-controversial, but he did say that he essentially endorsed the ballot initiative question three, saying that we needed um, energy choice to like move forward and to like unleash innovation, uh, a bunch of other pro question three language. So it was good to get him on the record on that. I noticed that not a lot of political figures had talked about this in 2016. Th- this ballot question in particular, Senator Harry Reid endorsed it. A bunch of large casinos have bankrolled it, but not a lot of uh, politicians have weighed in. So that was something I wanted to do with the story. It's interesting. I, I wonder, I mean, do you have any uh, idea why or did you get any answer to why there was such a cloak of secrecy around what Laxalt was saying? Why they didn't want his picture taken? D- d- delete the pictures of a camera. I've never heard of such a thing. Uh, and and you, we should say that Jeff Scheid, the camera, the photographer, declined to do so. Yeah, he declined to do so and was then asked to leave. Um, I don't know if it's because he's, he's announcing in a couple of weeks. I thought this would be a somewhat non-controversial topic to talk about as it did pass 75 to 25 percent right. in 2016. The vast majority of the state is in favor of energy choice, as we saw in 2016. When I talked to gubernatorial candidates, um, Chris Giunchiliani, who's a Democrat, and Dan Schwartz, the Republican treasurer, both said they were in favor of it. Interestingly, the only one who put a lot of doubt on it was Steve Sisolak the Clark County Commission chairman, who's also a Democrat, he said he voted for it in 2016, but was withholding judgment because he wants to see what effect it will have on NV energy and on consumers. Uh, There's a concern that the utility, if this does pass, will like lose six to 700 employees just because their, their jobs won't be needed anymore if they're not doing any generation or any retail sales. And Riley, can you tell uh, all of our listeners how Dan Schwartz, the, the treasurer, voted in 2016 on uh, the Energy Choice Initiative? I can, and Dan Schwartz <laughs> can't tell you either. He said he didn't remember, um, which is actually funny because Mark Hutchison, the lieutenant governor, I asked him before, and he said he didn't remember how he voted either. So I guess it wasn't. That's really strange, don't you think? I mean, it's it's not like there were it's, we're not like California yet, where we have like 300 questions <laughs> on the ballot. There were yeah. not that many questions. They know how they voted. I think Mark Hutchison like wanted to play it very straight because he's chairing this Energy Choice Commission. I think right. Dan Schwartz probably just didn't remember how we voted. And he said, I'll probably support it. Like, I'm, I'm all for renewable energy. Um, and yeah, so I don't, he doesn't know. Before we move on to another topic, uh, uh, Riley, you've done a lot of uh, great reporting on this. You did a recent piece about, I mean, it, it seems good. I mean, everyone thinks choice is great. That's why it passed by three to one. Everyone hates Envy Energy. Everyone hates the power company. Uh, I, I probably shouldn't be saying that since they're a big donor to, to the Envy, <laughs> to the Indy. But nevertheless, it's true. People hate hate to hate the power company, but there's a lot of unanswered questions about what the impact of this is going to be. People don't know what the market's going to look like. You did a story recently about all the so-called sunken costs that NV Energy has, billion, seven billion, is that what it is? Something seven like? billion in contracts that go beyond. Yeah, and so how are you going to resolve those? And they're going to have certain assets that you can't just take. And you're also working on another piece about a dispute about what the Public Utilities Commission's role is right now in this, right? Yeah. So I guess I have to run this story tomorrow. We're recording this on Thursday if we're talking about it on the podcast. Um, But back in September, this Energy Choice Commission that I mentioned before, it's chaired by the lieutenant governor, has 25 members on it, people from the Sands, from Wynn, from MGM, NV Energy, the Bureau of Consumer Protection, the AARP, basically anyone you could imagine who would be affected by energy prices is on this commission. They held a meeting in September where they recommended that the Public Utilities Commission, which is like the top energy regulator in Nevada, open what's called an investigatory docket and look into some of the issues around energy choice. They're doing this because this commission doesn't have any funding. They don't really have any staff. 
other than the lieutenant governor's existing staff, uh, a lot of these people are like catching up on energy policy as it sort of is going on. So they figured they would go to the experts and ask them to help. And what came up during this meeting, which hasn't been reported before, is sort of this battle between a lot of the guys who are backing Energy Choice Question 3, Sands, Wynn, um, and uh, consumer advocates over this question of whether or not the PUC should assess the cost of Energy Choice. How much is this going to cost us? What are going to be the financial benefits? Why would they be opposed to assessing the cost? They're opposed to it because under Nevada law, um, you're allowed to leave NV Energy's purview and buy electricity on the open market over what's called the, the 704B process. So that's sort of like the wonky, shortish term that they use to refer to all these companies. The Sands was one of these. They decided not to because they thought the exit fee was too high. They have to pay exit fees to leave to help keep ratepayers whole, to keep the utility whole. And their concern was that by um, opening up the question of cost, they might bring in factors that could affect existing 704B customers who are independent of NV Energy but are still going to be affected by choice. So they didn't want the PUC to have anything to do with cost and benefits. The problem is that the PUC chairman is on this commission, and he said several times then that I don't really care what you guys recommend to me. I'm not going to open a docket unless I just look at cost. I would not be able to do that in good faith otherwise. And so, essentially this commission, this Energy Choice Commission, has no power over the PUC to tell them what to do, right? Yeah, this was all over a letter and what they were going to ask yeah. for the letter. But the PUC chairman is on the commission, so it's not like he didn't know any of this stuff happened. This is all in a public meeting. We're going to post part of the video um, in the story. So – and, and again, it's like this commission has no real power. They're setting forward recommendations. This was created by a, a gubernatorial executive order. So like nothing they do really sticks. They're being looked at as like sort of the, the first crack at, at dealing with energy choice because the legislature only meets 120 days. And there's like two people in that building who understand like energy policy really. You're deep. one of them, right? right? Uh, well, <laughs> almost there. Um, so. It was sort of weird because it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Like when the PUC does this investigatory docket, it's going to take several months. And when it gets turned in, the commission doesn't have to accept it. They can like pick and choose whatever they want. They can talk about cost inside or outside of that. Um, so it, it was sort of like a strange, very dramatic turn. They ended up voting to not include costs and benefits in the letter. It passed on like an eight to five vote. But then the PUC and in, in their investigatory docket, when they're announcing it, they said, all right, we're going to deal with these four issues. And because we're the PUC, we're going to also deal with cost and benefits. So it was like this so whole that vote big, was meaningless. Essentially, yeah. And when they do this docket, none of the stuff has been filed yet. They don't meet until January. And whatever recommendations they come up with, the commission will still have the choice of what to what to include in the final report and what not to include in the final report. Uh, uh, we could talk about energy all day, but Megan's going to get mad at me if, 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 if we're doing <laughs> I want to get back to it. But it, there's all kinds of issues. Just one last thing. All kinds of issues raised by this. Like what will the Public Utilities Commission's role be in a deregulated market? Will they be able to have the same authority? Uh, you would think that they would. What is the point of this Energy Commission if it essentially does have no power? It's got 25 people on it. I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions, right, Riley? There are a lot of unanswered questions. And again, this is all contingent on this ballot measure pass. It's pretty Which is good likely. It passed 75, 25. Right. Things are pretty popular. The Yeah, the, people have gotten mad when I call this energy deregulation because really it's more regulation. You need an expanded PUC staff to make sure all of these new retail companies are following the rules. You need to have someone who's the provider of last resort. So basically when if, – if you contract, if you – work with whatever energy retailer you have and they go out of business for whatever reason, your lights still need to be able to flip on and off. Um, so they have to do that. There's a concern and a need that the Bureau of Consumer Protection will have to be expanded or possibly expanded to help deal with additional consumer complaints, consumer awareness. So it's, it's a lot more government bureaucracy, a lot more oversight. A lot of the stuff is going to be needed if they want to do this 
Correct. And, you know, I think, and this might be my opinion, but I think there's a reason like states have not done this since the turn of the century. It's very complicated. There's a lot of stuff going on. You know, a lot of the states like Texas, like uh, in, in the Northeast that have done this, they have seen sometimes a mixed bag of results. Sometimes costs do go down, sometimes costs go up. But you have to like really put in the work ahead of time and like make sure you set up these systems correctly. Otherwise, there's so many pitfalls that you run into when it comes to setting up energy markets. Energy is something that affects everyone. Everyone who right. uses electricity, everyone pays the utility. And adding this complication in a state like Nevada, which historically has not had a, a very robust government presence or regulatory presence, it's going to be challenging. So I think that's why the Energy Commission was set up. I think that's why the governor put it in place because he realized even though he's termed out in 2019, whoever the next governor is is going to have to deal with it. Let's not have them start fresh and new and have to figure out like energy markets in four years. Let's give them somewhat of a head start. Yeah, it's just a fascinating topic, as I said, with all kinds of unanswered questions. And Riley, you've done a great job diving into it. And you should, you should read his stuff on uh, NevadaIndependent.com. Uh, Riley's gotten great at really being able to explain this. Uh, in layman's terms, and uh, he's going to do an entire 6,000-word piece on why it's 704B in the first place and what that really means, so we'll look forward to that. You keep saying that, John, but Megan <laughs> fell asleep about 10 minutes ago. So <laughs> don't, don't, tell him, don't, don't, don't tell anybody that. So speaking of complicated topics, Megan, I'm going to let you uh, do a little bit of a filibuster here to answer uh, Riley's. Uh, you've, been, you've been immersing yourself since the session on this issue of the pharmaceutical industry and transparency and a couple of bills, one that was vetoed by the governor, then one was sent back. It's kind of uh, combined a couple of bills, and and uh, now there's lawsuits, uh, a, a lawsuit by the by the pharma industry, and and there's people who want to get in, uh, insert themselves into this. And you've been following uh, this, uh, and you have an update. Yes. So uh, I wasn't on the podcast last week. So uh, the news last week. You seem was bitter that... about. That. Are you bitter that you were not on the podcast last week? No, I. You okay. know, it's good to rotate. Okay, good. good. All right. <laughs> so it's all good. Um, yeah. So what happened last week? Uh, there was a, a hearing on this uh, so-called motion for preliminary injunction, which was basically the major pharmaceutical companies going to the court saying, "Court, please do not let the state to continue to implement this law. We want you to halt it. We're challenging it. We think it's unconstitutional. We think they can't." Do do it. Um, no, this is only a portion of the law they're saying is unconstitutional, but they were coming in saying, please do not let the state move forward with implementing this portion of this law. Um, and the portion that they object to is, is these requirements that uh, manufacturers of essential diabetes drugs, so insulins, other medication to treat diabetes, would be subject to certain uh, pricing transparency disclosures if the drugs increased by a certain amount over the previous year. The companies object to this. They say it would require them to disclose trade secrets, that they're going to lose profits. You know, they, they, they say that it violates, you know, federal patent law and the takings clause of the U.S. Constitution and multiple other arguments. Um, so they've made this sort of, uh, you know, case about it. And they went to the judge saying, you know, we, we think we're going to win on these merits. Please don't let the state move forward with this. It's going to be detri detrimental to us. And basically what they were trying to argue is that if you let the state publish this list of essential diabetes drugs, we lose our trade secret protections, any trade secret protections we might have over the information related to those drugs immediately. The judge did not agree with that argument. He said, um, you know, at, at the very least, you're, you're going to, any, any potential harm you could suffer, you will suffer 
for next year when these disclosures are actually required to be made. The department simply publishing this list of diabetes drugs isn't going to make you lose your trade secret protections. You're not going to face any immediate and irreparable harm, which is the legal standard uh, for granting a preliminary injunction. So he basically said, no, you can't do that. Um, the implementation of the law is going to move forward. Um, and so that's where we're at now. I reached out to the Department of Health and Human Services. They said in an email this week that they are moving forward with implementation. So they're expecting to release this list of essential diabetes drugs on November 1st, which is Tuesday. Wait, no, Wednesday? Wednesday. Wednesday, Halloween is Tuesday. It's already been a long week. So and they're gonna... Nevada Day. Don't forget Nevada Day. And Nevada Day, <laughs> yes. Right. How could I forget Nevada Day? <laughs> anyway, so this list is going to be out next week. So we'll find out which drugs are going to be potentially subject to these disclosures. Again, um, the, the sort of full extent of disclosures aren't going to be required to be made unless the prices of the drugs exceed medical inflation. So this is sort of the metric that the legislature set when it passed this bill earlier um, earlier this year. And so that will move forward. The department has also said that they're going to move forward with the regulatory process. Previously, before the lawsuit, their plan was to start doing those regulatory hearings in December. Uh, they did not specify a time period in which those hearings would happen. Uh, when I reached out this week, they just said that they would begin sometime after they published that list on November 1st. But we can expect everything to move forward. And then it just becomes a question of how quickly that, that lawsuit obviously moves forward. Um, the parties have asked for what's known as summary judgment. So basically, you know, actually pharma and the legislature there are multiple parties to the case but those two parties have seemingly agreed to some form of form of summary judgment which would basically let the judge just make a ruling on the faxing we don't need to go to a full trial you know we sort of agree about you know what this what this bill says here's the text of the bill just tell us whether or not it's constitutional and the legislature asked for the judge to do that uh, originally wanted the judge to do that last week the judge said no we're, we're going to give a little bit more time for that um, but pharma seemed to indicate that they would be open to completing this sort of briefing process by Thanksgiving so it would be sort of you know a more expedited process than these uh, these cases that can drag on for years and years. They want some sort of resolution on a on a shorter time frame, whatever that looks like. So so the legislature, so people understand. And I, I want to make sure I understand. Megan, the legislature essentially is defending on its face that the bill is constitutional, right? They they want the judge to just say, listen, this bill was passed. It's constitutional on its face. Let it proceed. That's all they really want, right? Yes. Yeah, that's the argument the legislature has made. So the legislature was not originally the named defendant in the lawsuit. Originally, the named defendants were Governor Brian Sandoval and the director of the Department of Health and Human Services, Richard Whitley. As the executive branch, they're the ones responsible for enforcing the law. Um, and so the pharmaceutical companies had sued them uh, because their their concerns are about the implementation of the law. The legislature asked the court to step in, saying we have an interest in you know making sure that the laws we pass are constitutional and arguing their constitutionality. You know, the uh, Legislative Council Bureau, the legislature's legal counsel, said during the session as much. You know, there were multiple questions over its legality. They put out, you know, various opinions saying, no, we, we believe that the pharmaceutical company's concerns are more practical in nature than they are legal. And so the legislature's attorneys have argued that the legislature as a body has an inherent interest in this law, you know, being seen as constitutional. And so that's the argument that the legislature has made is that they just have to argue that basically what they have to do is they have to prove that it's not facially unconstitutional, which means there's at least one, you know, interpretation of the law in which 
this can be constitutional. So one way of implementing the law. So they're just saying in the face of the language, you know, whatever it says you have to do, that all is constitutional. You know, you could argue here and there about implementation. Do you implement it this way or that way? And, and then you could run into issues there. But they're just saying there's nothing in the law inherently that makes it unconstitutional. So if the time frame is, is that they're going to start the regulatory process before the end of the year, theoretically, mm -hmm. they want these briefs filed in the lawsuit uh, by around Thanksgiving or so. Do we think that if the judge agrees to a summary judgment that it could be done before the end of the year? Oh, it's hard to tell. I mean, you never know what the legal system, how long things are going to take. But I mean, there's a, there at least seems to be some agreement from the parties that this should be, you know, this should be resolved sooner rather than later. You know, if it's going to be it's going to be deemed unconstitutional. You know, why is the state going to spend all of this effort going through the regulatory process? If it is, you know, unconstitutional on its face, that means, you know, no amount of regulations they make will change that, which is what the pharmaceutical companies have argued. And so that's that's sort of the question that remains is how quickly this will be resolved. You know, the, the reporting requirements don't begin until the middle of next year. So there's a little bit of time. There are other parts of the law that are, are still going into effect that aren't being challenged, other provisions. And, and so I think that that is the big question is how long is this going to take? When will we get an answer? And how does how does sort of the timeline of the lawsuit play out with this timeline of the regulatory process now? And, and we think uh, uh, that, that the pharmaceutical companies see this as a huge deal, not just here in Nevada, but kind of this is the nose under the tent that if this if this is found to be legal here, then other states are likely uh, to, to, to try to do something like this if it's found to be constitutional, right? That's their worry, right? It's not just right. about Nevada. Yeah, so it's not just about Nevada, and it's not just about insulin or other essential diabetes drugs as well. The Nevada bill is, is focused on Nevada, and it's specifically focused on essential diabetes drugs. But yeah, that's the, the concern is that this could happen in other states. It could happen with other drugs as well. Um, you know, states have tried to put price controls, you know, put actual caps on the cost of diabetes drugs. There was a D.C. Um, law that got struck down that was ruled unconstitutional. And the pharmaceutical companies have argued in this case that all of these requirements in the bill constitutes an effective cap, that they're going to be effectively capped in their prices because they don't want to disclose all of this information. Therefore, they're going to keep them below that rate of medical inflation so that they don't have to tell the public. Um, they've also made the argument, too, that if, you know, the, the pricing information about this drug is made public in Nevada, you know, it's, it's going to be public everywhere. You know, if you, it doesn't matter if you right. live in Maine or California or Arkansas, right. you know, you, you can still access this information and, and somewhat rely on what you've seen in, in Nevada. And so there, there are potential, you know, larger implications for this as well. It's kind of interesting for such a small state, guys, that, uh, uh, that we have these landmark bills passed your sprinkle care is a landmark bill and now being copied on federal level we have this pharmaceutical uh bill uh uh, you might think that we really matter, don't you think? Right? <laughs> is that the best way to put Sounds it? Sounds familiar. <laughs> so let's let's talk about a, another issue, and and, and 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 this is obviously a very serious issue. It's become part of the national conversation uh, with the Harvey Weinstein story, with uh, with with uh, again accusers coming back and making comments about the president, with Mark Halperin uh, now, uh, a prominent journalist having uh, 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 employees who work with him at ABC News saying that he sexually harassed him. The Bill Cosby story that, that occurred a while. This is suddenly the whole dialogue is changing on this. And this was something that was to some extent raging at the, at the legislature, uh, uh, even before the Weinstein story and the rest of this now has caused this national conversation. I want to talk about this a little bit and talk about the story uh, that, that you just published, uh, had published today, Riley, that talked about what happened toward the end of, of, of the session. In fact, really uh, in the waning minutes of the session, right? Yeah. So literally in the last 10 minutes of the legislative session. Again, Nevada has a 120-day legislative session. Lawmakers can only make laws during that time. 
they passed a series of rule changes, which I, I was very frustrated at the time because they weren't public, they weren't online, they were like there was no paper copy anywhere. So we're like, what did they just do? Like we're done with the government for two years. Essentially, it's an expanded version of the legislative rules that adds new language around sexual harassment and reporting. It requires the Legislative Council Bureau, which is like the in-house staff for the legislature to create a new reporting system that's still in the works. It adds language about lobbyists and what's um, appropriate behavior, it creates a code of legislative ethics that is supposed to apply both during the legislative session and the 120 days and outside the legislative session. It um, allows these complaints to be sort of heard throughout the year, not just during the legislative session. Another change that was made this year that wasn't made in the last few minutes but was made at the start of the session is that um, these ethics committees, the bodies that would presumably hear these complaints about sexual harassment if they do come up, they're allowed to meet now around um, every day of the year. Like they're not just limited to the 120-day legislative session. They essentially have never met, right? They've never done it. They've never met since 2009, but, right. you know, it's a small step. So it, right. it's something to look forward to. Um, so I w finally went and dove into sort of the policy. I talked to – a law professor in New York who helped New York set up their sexual harassment policy for their state assembly that was put in place in 2013 after one of the members had to resign over like several allegations uh, of um, sexual harassment. And what really like got me in this story, and we can talk about Mark Menendo or Megan can talk about Mark Menendo, is like this story like has repeated itself in state legislature after state legislature. It doesn't matter if it's here. It doesn't matter if it's in New York or Oklahoma or Tennessee. Like and it's all in the last two or when three. When you say years. this story, are you talking about sexual harassment complaints being filed? Yeah, like consistent sexual harassment from powerful male legislators against you know interns, lobbyists, other female legislators. Right in California, a few weeks ago, there was a group of 140 women, including six uh, female legislators, who wrote an open letter saying like this is unacceptable, and they listed out a lot of examples. They didn't name any names, um, but they said this is just consistent behavior in in, in state houses, and Nevada is certainly not immune to it. Certainly, uh, I, I want you to talk about this, Megan, because, uh, and this is serious, because you, you are the only woman here, and I, I want to hear your perspective on this. But in the sense that, listen, I'm, uh, I've been covering the legislature since 1987. There have been stories, and not just about Mark Menendo, but there, you hear stories, some rumors. I like to say that 75 to 80 percent of the rumors that in Carson City are, turn out not to be true, but the ones that are true, they're pretty awful. And, I, and the, the, mention Mark Menendo, who's the Democratic state senator who, uh, the, the there was this investigation, and he eventually resigned, and it prompted this change. But, 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 and this became a real partisan thing, and it was even as recently as today, uh, with, with a Republican operative criticizing uh, our, our story uh, for, for a variety of reasons. I'm just wondering, uh, without talking about Mark Menendo, I mean, the Democratic leadership did coddle him. They should have done something more about it, in my opinion, back in 2003 when this first came up. But this is your first session. Covering. Did you hear stories? Did you, I mean, was was, was there was there um, grumbling in the background? Not just about Menendo, but a lot of people describe Carson City, and, I, and I'm doing since I let you guys do your filibuster. Let me finish mine. Uh, essentially, that you know, it's 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 described by a lot of people as like high school. Like a big high school, you're in this enclosed building for four months. It used to be longer back in back in the day, and and there was more opportunity in that atmosphere for because the, as as Riley talks about powerful male legislators. It's been a male dominated legislature for a long time. We've increased our percentage of women, which is kind of ironic over the years, and we've had two female speakers recently as well. But I'm just wondering your experience up there, Megan, in talking to other women, whether they're lobbyists or legislators. If you heard, story, I'm not asking for specific 
stories, but stories about the atmosphere, the toxicity of it. What did you hear? Yeah, I think you. I think you sort of touched on the interesting, interesting thing that you know, going into the legislative session and seeing all these, you know, female legislators and all these, you know, powerful female lawmakers who've, you know, done fairly well in their their careers. You know, ascended to, to speaker and you know held these positions in leadership and and just with the high proportion of women in our legislature. You know, I think I think there's a sense that you know there's you know maybe more equality in Nevada and that you know people have obviously praised the the, the fact that we have so many women um, in our legislature. Um, at the same time, you know, this, like like Riley was saying, the story isn't new. The story happens everywhere. It happens whether you're in the legislature or in um, media or, you know, Harvey Weinstein. This happens everywhere. You know, it's, it's not isolated to journalism. It's not isolated to politics. It's not isolated to TV. It's, it's not isolated to any industry. It happens everywhere. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I've heard stories at the legislature. I think I think one of the, the difficult things, though, and, and this is what's sort of coming into focus now is, you know, um, sharing those stories, right? In, in the wake of, you know, the Harvey Weinstein allegations, you know, you had you had a few women come forward and then you had more and you had more and sort of as as more women felt, um, you know, as, as more women felt comfortable speaking and sharing their stories that encouraged other other women to come forward and share their stories. Um, and now we've sort of seen this wave, you know, spreading to other industries too, looking at, you know, politics or, or the media. Um, and so I think that's the biggest thing is that so many women are afraid of speaking up, you know, say you're an intern, you know, do you, do you want to speak up about your boss or the other legislature? You're trying to work your way up. You don't want to make waves and, and you're just trying to do what you can um, to further your career. And so you just put up with a lot of this stuff or there's a lot of doubt too, you know, did I, did I, you know, misinterpret that? You know, was it, was it my perception that was wrong? And I think there's a lot of questioning that happens when these type of things occur. And so I think now that it's coming more into the public sphere and, and the public space, people feel like, you know, I'm not alone. This has happened to other women in my industry, outside of my industry. And so now they feel like they have um, a little bit more platform on which to speak that maybe, you know, they won't be criticized for speaking out as much. And so, you know, obviously it, it's up to each individual um, person, you know, female or male, this happens um, to everyone to share their story um, but we have seen more of that, I think, just because there is a little bit more, you know, at least right now in this moment, this, you know, space for people to share these stories. I'm just wondering if it's temporal, though, in, in, in the sense that, you know, this is how a lot of stories happen. And there's a lot of attention to it now. Will this blow over? Do you think this is going to, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're relatively young, but, you, but you've had a few jobs. The, the cultures are different every place that you work. But is this gonna is this gonna create an opening where you think that 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 cultures will change? I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, men are are gonna be are gonna are, are gonna misbehave in positions of power. Not all men, but some men will. The question is, uh, uh, creating this conversation, the openness to talk about it. Do you think it'll really change anything? I mean, I think only time can tell that. You know, I, I don't think we're gonna have a real sense of it. But at least with this conversation, I think it's been on more people's minds. You know, um, female or male, whether or not you've gone through this or not, but to be more aware that these types of things that could be happening, looking out for ways to support, you know, your colleagues, or you know, be a mentor to someone if you see them, you know, going through something like this, or, or just reach out to them. So I, I don't know. I don't know if things are gonna change. I mean, I, th I think a lot of people are hoping that they will. You know, this is this is a horrible thing and, and something no one should have to face. But I, I don't I don't know. I think I, I think this is sort of the first step is people coming forward and, and then we'll see what happens after that. You know, it's interesting, Riley, because as you, as you know, the independent and several other media organizations, I believe, requested this report 
about Menendo, saying that it was paid for by tax money. It should be, it should be released. Uh, uh, my information was there were dozens upon dozens of women who, who eventually came forward once it came out that there was an investigator look, looking. And again, I don't want to make this necessarily about Mark Menendo, but this is a difficult thing for me personally and as a journalist because a lot of these women at, at great risk to themselves came forward. They were they were interns or, or there were lobbyists who had to rely on these legislators. Uh, and, 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 and I'm wondering... Uh, because there's, again, some of the criticism today uh, actually was about w whether uh, the Democrats should have released that report uh, or, 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 or not. I I'm wondering what either of you think. You can start, Riley, if you want. Is, 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 is there a way for – I mean, would it have helped if that report had been made public, do you think? I, I don't really don't want to weigh in on that because, you know, it, it does take a lot. Megan very exquisitely explained that there is not a lot of upside in doing that. Marco Menendo is certainly not a household name and – when you're in the legislature and he has it out for you, he can do a lot of damage. Um, one of the things that was interesting that happened in New York is that they require a written non-retaliation non policy be put in place for people who do testify and who do bring forward these complaints. And if that is violated, there's very serious consequences. New York has a slightly more powerful state legislature than we do. They have district offices. They have additional staff members. And that can be taken away if they do violate this um, I think there is more civic engagement in New York, so a lot of the people who have been accused of things like this don't get returned to office. I think one of the biggest things, at least for me and in, in reporting out the story, is like there just is no consequences for this type of behavior unless the leadership, because they've set up this sort of informal policing system, does something. That never happened with Mark Fernando. He got accused of this in 2003. He asked to date like two 20-year-old interns. When they turned him down, he put one of their boss's bills like on the drawer and like refused to hear it. Um, an investigation was launched and nothing happened with it. Um, in 2009, he like told a state worker these horrible things, and he was privately reprimanded, but it never came out. Even now, in 2017, like they knew this was an issue. Um, the report that came out had 14 confirmed instances of like inappropriate behavior, and they talked to 53 people. But he stayed in the legislature, you know, that entire time. He didn't lose his committee chairmanship until like the last two weeks. He was reprimanded on the floor of the Senate, but on the very last day. So I think a big part of it, you talked about John, that like people always misbehave when they have power. But having like actual consequences, I think, is a big part of it and seeing that these consequences matter, not that you can do this in 2003 and then get away with that behavior, you know, for the next 20 years. I don't think, you know, obviously these are all allegations and everyone deserves their due process, but I'm sure this wasn't the first time Mark Menendo did this or it only happened in 2003, 2009, 2017. Like it goes on and on and when there's no consequences, you know, there, there's no reason to stop. Yeah, I, I still remember it. I think I've told you, I don't know if I've talked about it on this podcast, the conversation I had back in 2003 when this everyone knew this was going on. That they, they, they wouldn't release the report then either. And I could not believe that they were just going to continue to let uh, uh, Mark Menendo go on. They weren't going to put up, put up a primary candidate against him and they weren't going to kick him out of the caucus, do any of even the minor things. But that's the problem here, it seems to me, Megan, is that these women still, they came forward believing they were it was going to be confidential. Their names would never be out there. But even, uh, it doesn't matter uh, how awful you might have hurt a person, as they do deserve, as Riley puts it, due process. And balancing all of that, non-retaliatory clauses seem interesting to me. But, you know, if, I, if, if, if a guy is accused of this and then he doesn't want, want to retaliate, maybe he gets his buddy uh, in the legislature to do something to, to, to screw the lobbyist over or something like that. or, or the, I mean, it's a difficult thing to really police because of all these issues, right? It is, yeah. I mean, and like you mentioned too, you know, making this report public 
Carson City is such a small city, you know, for anyone who's been up there, it's, you know, there it's just not that big of a town. There's there's not that many places where people go, you'll run into people all the time. Um, and so the chances that making that, you know, report public would not contain any, you know, personal identifying information. I mean, there just aren't that many locations. If you say this happened, you know, at the legislative building at, at this place, or it happened, you know, at, at Comic Coffee or whatever, you know, there aren't that many places you go in, in Carson City. So the chances that someone else saw and know, knows who you were talking about, and then maybe tell someone else, you know, it, it's just such a small, such a small universe up there. And so I think, you know, making that report pro- I mean, I obviously don't know the, con- the contents of the report, but I think probably making that report public in any meaningful way, you know, would have been really difficult trying to remove all of that, you know, information that would have been personally um, identifying. I mean, and like you mentioned as well, you know, our colleague Michelle um, and I spent some time during the legislative session, you know, trying to talk to different folks. And it's it's just one of those things that's so hard to talk about on the record, you know, even finding someone who would talk about it with us on background, you know, it's it's... It's not the kind of thing that's easy to share, and it's not the kind of thing that, you know, someone should share unless they feel comfortable, you know, in, in that decision. Um, but at the same time, you know, like we've talked about, the, the difficult thing is if, if you don't want to – if you don't want to share, if you don't want to press charges, if you don't want to, you know, rock the boat or, or feel like you're going to do that by bringing this forward, then nothing changes, you know, and then it's it's this pattern. So, I mean, it's just sort of this impossible situation that that can just keep repeating itself, you know, behind the scenes, behind closed doors, you know, unless something like this comes to light and people start talking about it. You know, it's interesting because this whole question of uh, uh, sexism and and, and discrimination against women in Carson City has come up during these uh, these recalls that are that are trying to be qualified right now because they're all against three. They're, they're all the legislators are women. Now I happen to think that they're not motivated by sexism. That these that these seats that are vulnerable to these recalls just happen to be held by women. The Democrats are using that. I I, I fear actually kind of a cry wolf syndrome on that. On the other hand, you had Patty Farley. Uh, go on uh, on KNPR and essentially describe a very hostile environment and essentially what she said to distill that interview and you can it, you can find it online is that she wouldn't have been treated that way not just by Michael Roberson but by other people in that caucus he's the, if she weren't a woman and and what was she treated differently uh, be, because uh, she, she she was a woman and no one essentially has stood up. In, in that caucus, the female members of that caucus or the male members of that caucus to defend what she said. In fact, Roberson has gotten a, a female member of the caucus and two former aides of his to say, no, he, he's great with women. And I, don't, I don't know if Michael Roberson is a sexist or not. We're not in those meetings. And I, I don't want it's like, to, it's like accusing someone of being a racist, you know. But the hostile environment that's created are women more, more vulnerable to that uh, uh, it, it, with a male dominated. Uh, a legislature. Uh, it, it's just it's difficult to to to, re- to really know how you actually police that, even though they set up these policies now, Riley. And 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 you mentioned the thing. I'm just I'm not sure if if again we talk about this a lot transparency in our business. If talking about it isn't the best thing, and that's why even. Even though I, I, I understand the concerns about how small Carson City is, and I mentioned the high school atmosphere, that releasing that report and really just not not to, to embarrass or shame Mark Menendo, but to show how awful probably some of this stuff was, if you could remove the identifying uh, uh, information, which would be difficult, I, I think, uh, it just seems more 
sunlight on this kind of stuff. More conversation is better than than not. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I I, I think that, you know, the, the fact that, you know, these, these women came forward in the Harvey Weinstein case and now it's sort of had this ripple effect in all these other industries. I mean, that that's that's a significant thing, the fact that so many people are talking about this. But the question is, do we keep talking about it? Do we keep trying to find ways to bring this forward? Do, you know, women feel more comfortable to share these kinds of things, you know, more openly with, with a boss, with someone else when, when they happen and take some sort of action? I mean, I, I think that, again, that's up to, you know, each individual person based on on, on what happens, but I mean, like you mentioned, we're we're having the conversation now, right? And that's at least you know the first step is is there you know being this awareness awareness that this is happening. You know, the irony, of course, is is Riley is that just last session, take the last session. I mentioned that there have been two female speakers recently, Marilyn Kirkpatrick and Barbara Buckley, who were both very powerful speakers, especially Buckley, who who was one of the most feared pe- people up there and really knew how to wield power. Uh, and whether you were a man or a woman, you, you you respected that. But you just look at it just this last session. You had Maggie Carlton, uh, who was the chairman of, uh, of, of the most powerful committee, arguably, in the assembly, right? And and you had Teresa Benitez-Thompson, who, who was uh, 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 the, the majority leader. Women in Carson City, despite all these stories, have ascended to powerful positions in recent years. No, they certainly have. I think a, a big part of it that we don't really talk about is that you know, term limits do have an effect. And yes, Maggie Carlton has been there since probably before I was born to out my age. You know, Teresa Benitez Thompson was majority leader. We had Marilyn Kirkpatrick as speaker, as you said. But a lot of them, like, they're they're there for a session or two, and then they're termed out, and that's it. There's no term limits on lobbyists. There's no term limits on sort of the people who are there year after year, session after session. And when power calcifies like that, um, you just end up with very powerful people. And I think there are a lot of wonderful female lobbyists, but I think a lot of the, the really big ones are, are old white guys, and a lot of them are – you fall in that same problem with – that we've seen in other state houses where it's you know men in powerful positions being able to wield an extraordinary amount of power. And I think it's difficult also. We haven't talked about that aspect, but you raised that. For for younger female lobbyists especially coming into the process for the first time, it's very difficult. It's a very – I think they find it to be a, to- a very toxic atmosphere up there, very difficult – because, you know, and Riley said it, and I mean, he, he described it that way. He's right. It's, most of the powerful lobbyists up there are older white guys and, and who are never going to be subject to the same kind of power dynamic that younger female lobbyists will. And even some, you know, older female lobbyists might, right? I mean, they're just treated differently, right? Don't you think so, Megan? Yeah. I mean, I, I again, I think that's the kind of thing that happens in, in any industry, unfortunately, is that this is just sort of the way, you know, society is and, and has been evolving and not, not that it, you know, should be that way but but yeah I mean that, that, that's a problem when when you don't have you know whether it's whether it's harassment whether it's this feeling that it's it's the boys club and you can't break in you know the, the, these power structures can like Riley said calcify and and because yeah like lobbyists don't have term limits they're they're there for years and years and, and they just become this sort of established power structure and I mean that's that's I, I don't know. I guess I guess this is a, also part of the conversation of what you know what the what the climate of Carson City is and, and whether or not that needs change and what that change should look like. All right, we could talk about this uh, all, all day long. Uh, we better wrap up the podcast. Let's let's talk a little bit about what what you guys are working on for future stories. Megan, what are you working on? Yeah. So for this weekend, I will have a preview of open enrollment, which sounds very simple, but there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, I've talked to many open enrollment for what? Make sure people for, know. Yes, <laughs> for insurance. <laughs> 
insurance on the individual marketplace. So through the Affordable Care Act, if you don't have insurance through your employer, you purchase it on the exchange. That open enrollment period is beginning um, starting November 1st. So again, that's Wednesday, Halloween in Nevada Day or Tuesday. Got to get our timetable right. Um, but there, I've, I've spent the week talking to um, tons of insurance agents and brokers who you know have been working with their customers. And there's so much misinformation out there. I mean, a lot of people think that the Affordable Care Act doesn't exist anymore. They've followed this, you know, the discussions over the summer, and they're not quite sure what action Congress actually took. So some of them are under the impression that it no longer exists anymore. It definitely does. Open enrollment is moving forward as um, as planned. Uh, it is going to be half the length that it was in previous years. So it's only 45 days. It runs until December 15th. So exchange officials and insurance agents are sort of, you know, preparing for that, trying to fit in all of their clients within that 45-day window. Um, Nevada uses healthcare.gov, the federal system, which, you know, has been known for long wait times and having, you know, technical problems or, you know, having to wait in the queue for hours. So there's a lot of concern about how that's actually going to play out in reality. And then just a lot of concern, too, about how you choose a plan. There are some changes this year with, you know, silver plans versus gold plans and how much things cost and how many subsidies you qualify for. Um, it can be very overwhelming. So the exchange and insurance agents are encouraging people, don't try to do this on your own. Start early. You know, go, go talk to their navigator organizations, their in-person assister organizations that will help you with this. You can go to insurance agent. Um, but just don't try to do this on your own because it is very complicated and if, if you make the wrong decision, you're going to be stuck with this health plan for the next year. So it's just sort of a lot of factors, you know, a lot of noise coming out of Washington, D.C. And, you know, things are even still changing. You know, right now there's there's a proposal that would fund these so-called cost-sharing reduction payments that would, you know, fur further sort of change the, the health insurance landscape. So it, there's just sort of a lot of moving variables right now. But the bottom line is that open enrollment is happening. And so if people are on the insurance individual exchange, they should go ahead and sign up for that. If you don't have insurance, you should sign up during open enrollment. That's happening as normal. That has not changed for now. You just told your whole story, right? I mean, yeah, that's there's, there's nothing more to yeah. do. There's nothing more to do. I might read, as well not write it. Yeah, read, read Megan's story uh, this weekend. Don't you ever say that. <laughs> Riley, what are you working on? Um, well, apparently I have to give all of our new subscribers a pumpkin that says no Ralston's allowed. So <laughs> yes. I'm going to be busy doing that this weekend. And, yeah, I, I don't really know if I have a lot of other stuff going on the weekend if you want to. You're working, you're working on that energy story <laughs> that, 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 that we talked about earlier. And I just want to say before, before we wrap up everything, it, is, it truly is a pleasure to hear both of you talk about, like you talk about healthcare, Megan and Riley talk about energy, to have reporters that really seem to have a passion uh, for the subjects that they cover. And I think it comes across uh, in your uh, writing, too. And I'm not just saying that because I, I, I want them to, to get their stories in on time. I, re <laughs> I really I actually uh, do believe it. Riley and Megan... Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast this week. That's all the time we have uh, for Indie Matters. We want to know what you think, as always. If you have ideas, criticism, or even, yes, praise, you can email us uh, at ideas at thenvnd.com. That's ideas at thenvnd.com. You can also check out our site. I mentioned it already, thenevadaindependent.com. You can also rate us on iTunes and subscribe, please. I think you have to subscribe before you rate us, or maybe you don't. Uh, you can also find us on Google Play and other platforms. And uh, I also, as always, want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And as always... Our great thanks to Joey Lovato, who's our fantastic producer, who makes us all sound... Podcast smooth. You were late, Megan. I will not forget that. At least two of the three always sound podcast smooth. And for the one who doesn't, I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week.
the sprinkle, father of sprinkle care is what's going to be on my tombstone. Yeah.